Good morning, church. Good morning. All right. Uh, hey, uh, my name is John Poitavent, and uh, I uh, attend here. I'm a member here at Antioch, and I've been here for about five years. Um, and uh, I, I, I co-co-co-lead a life group, which means we have an abundance of leadership in our group. And, uh, and then also, I'm helping in February, I'm helping launch something called Alpha. Has anybody ever heard of Alpha, familiar with it at all? A few folks. And uh, it's really an amazing program that comes out of the UK that we're going to be doing here that just uh, gives a place for people to have spiritual conversations around tables and small groups and really speak openly about the things they're struggling with or wrestling with or, or where they're at in their journey. So uh, listen more for that. Um, I think it's going to be a great thing to, uh, to participate in, but also to bring folks to who might be walking through that journey with you. Um, I, uh, when I'm not at Antioch, I, I'm a consultant and I help uh, churches and nonprofits and organizations that impact the world for good uh, be great at doing good for the kingdom. And so that's what I get to do. I love it. Uh, I love working with the people of God. And uh, I love being here at Antioch. This is, um, uh, I love this church. And when I say that, I don't just mean like this organization or this building. I mean this family, this community of people. And it's been uh, my life for me since I first landed in Dallas. And uh, if you're not in a life group or you're not connected here or you're just checking it out, I really encourage you uh, to reach out and, and get connected. It's a great family. It's a great group of people that you can trust walking through uh, the highs and the lows of your life with. People that will carry both of those in their hearts uh, with great trust and compassion. And I uh, hope that you'll, if you're not experiencing that yet, I hope that you will. Um, as Zach said, we're in a series and where we're looking at some famous Christian, uh, Christmas movies, some of our favorites. And uh, last week, uh, Donnie Tapey uh, preached from the gospel according to the Grinch. And this week, I'm going to be coming to you from the book of Elf. Um, if you are familiar with it, uh, who here has seen Elf? Just to show, okay. Who here has not seen Elf besides my parents? Okay. My sister, she's not seen Elf either. Wow. Jason, you got to disciple your mother there on the, on the good things in life. Um, well, I will give you um, a short overview of it. Uh, elf is this story of uh, an elf uh, who is uh, not quite fitting in with the people around him. As you can see here, it's Will Ferrell. And uh, he comes to discover that he's not truly an elf at all, that he's a human. And we, we, the story begins in an orphanage where his uh, teenage mother gave him up for adoption and on Christmas Eve, he uh, somehow crawls into Santa's bag of toys and ends up in the North Pole, um, and where he's raised as an elf by an elf dad. Bob Newhart is his dad. But uh, as he grows and he realizes he's somewhat different than the people around him, he, he finds out that he's a human and he has a father who's in New York and he goes on this journey to discover his father. So he, he leaves the North Pole. He walks through the seven levels of the candy cane forest, through the sea of swirly twirly gumdrops, and he walks out of Lincoln Tunnel into New York City where hilarity ensues with slapstick shenanigans and eventually him discovering his dad being reconciled to his dad and saving Christmas. So spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. Um, it's still worth watching. Uh, it's much better than my explanation. But I did want to share with you a few of my favorite uh, moments from Elf. So uh, let's roll the video. Let's check that out. 
you know, I mean, it's a funny movie, right? And um, when when we were doing, when, when Zach first talked to me about doing this series, nobody had yet drafted a Christmas movie, so I was like, first draft pick, I want Elf. I have no idea what I'm going to say, but that's the movie I want. And, uh, and I watched it a few times, and, um, and I, I, I realized, besides it being really funny, I think one reason it connects with us because, is because Buddy's journey is the same journey that we're all on, right? Like, we've all felt like a cotton-headed ninny muggins that's 915 units behind, that doesn't fit in with the people around them, who all know exactly what they're called to do and what their gifts are and what they're good at. We don't know necessarily where we come from or, or, or we really don't know the Father and we, we don't know what our purpose is. And, and as Buddy walks through this and experiences it, we all experience the joy of that. And, um, you know, in the past two years, uh, it's, it's a journey that I've been on again. You know, you ever go on the same journey again that you've been on before and you're like, I'm back here again. And, uh, and as, as it was really some scriptures that kind of started me on that that just stuck with me. I don't know if you've ever read something in scripture that just like stucks, it sticks with you and it kind of bugs you and you keep going back to it. It's like that thing that you, you don't really know what's going on there, but you know it's for you. You know there's something more to it that you haven't gotten out before. And so there's these three prayers that the apostle Paul prays for churches that he started, churches that he was a spiritual father to. And that he knew uh, intimately what was going on in those churches and who the people were and what their struggles were. And he wrote to them specifically about their struggles, about what the challenges were they were facing, and specifically what he knew they needed to hear from a father. And so the first two are from the book of Ephesus, uh, the book of Ephesians, written to the church in Ephesus. And and Ephesus was a city that uh, was very prosperous, it was very success-oriented, had a lot of resources. People came to Ephesus because of the prosperity. And it was also a very religious city. They were very devoted to this goddess Diana that they worshipped, that much of even the economy of the city was based around this goddess Diana. But, you know, when I think about that, I think it's, it's not that different than Dallas, right? You have this successful, uh, somewhat materialistic, uh, prosperous city that it has also a very strong religious overtone to it, right? And, and so as I, I read these in light of Paul writing to this church, first I, I, there's these prayers that he prays for them that he tells them, this is what I'm praying for you. And it kind of struck me as like not what I would have prayed for them. And I want you to think, if, I, if you were writing uh, a letter to the church in Dallas to encourage them, to correct them, to tell them what they needed to do to prosper the gospel in the city, what would you tell them? What would you tell the church in Ephesus? And I'll tell you what he didn't tell the church in Ephesus. He didn't say, you know this goddess Diana thing, it's pagan, it's against our beliefs. I want you to picket the Diana statue stores, and then I want you to pray that legislature makes a law that makes worshiping the goddess Diana illegal and shuts all these things down. If we can just get the right people in office, then we'll really get this city the way that God wants it. He didn't pray that. He didn't say that. We can't relate that to our own culture, can we? To our Christian mindset and our own culture. He prayed for them as people. He prayed for their hearts. He prayed for their relationship with God, believing that when they 
live in and believe and walk out God's kingdom that the city changes. And it actually changed so much that there was a riot. There was a riot because people stopped buying these statues for this goddess because they were following Jesus. And actually all the people that made money off of selling these rioted against Paul and the Christians because they were killing their business. But it wasn't because they picketed it and it wasn't because they spoke against it. It was because they spoke for Jesus and they walked with him and people's lives were changed. So I want to I wanna look at these prayers. And the first prayer is found at the beginning of the book, uh, Ephesians 1. Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now that's a lot of words. So let me, let me kind of edit it and break it down just a little bit. Here's what I hear him saying. I keep praying for you to know him better Know the hope to which he has called you. Know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That's still a lot of words. And I like things really simple. So let me simplify it one more time. He says, I keep praying for you to know the Father, for you to know the hope of your calling, to know your worth to him, and to know his power. You're in this city. It's materialistic. It's successful. It's prosperous. There's all kinds of religious worship going on around you. Here's what you really need. You need to know the Father. You need to know what he thinks about you and who you are as his child. You need to know that you are precious to him. That is your worth. You are his inheritance. And you need to know that his power is for you as you believe in him. That's what he prayed for them. That's what they needed. But isn't that what we all, that's what I need. When I read that, I was like, that's, that's what I need. That's what I need to pray. And that word know there, um, you know, I mean, the English language is, is very vague and, and weak at times in the way that we use words. Like we say, I know so-and-so, like you met them once. Or, um, you know, I know about this because you read an article about it on the internet. But that word in the, in the Greek, it's this word gnosko, which means deep, processed, belief, experiential, knowledge that has become understanding that resides in your heart. It's an intimate knowledge. It's not just a head knowledge. And it's used 188 times in the New Testament. That word knowing, that's, that's how important that kind of knowing is what God's talking about that he wants for us. And it's such a strong word that it's the word that is used when it says that Joseph did not know Mary until after Jesus was born. That kind of knowing. And he's saying, I want you to have a knowing of the Father and his love that is even more intimate than that. That's what I'm praying for you, my children. In John 17, three, Jesus explains the reason that he came to earth. And it's not so that you could die and go to heaven. He says this, he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they may gnosko, 
intimately, experientially, believing deeply in their understanding of you, God, the God who is love, and me, your son, who is an exact representation of you. That's why he came. The second prayer is similar to the first prayer. It's a couple chapters later. And he says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Again, that's a lot of words for me, so let me break it down. He says, I pray for you to know the depth of his love. I pray that you would know even beyond head knowledge and be filled with this love, which is Christ. I believe that God's number one priority in your life is for you to know and believe in his love for you. I don't know what you think God's priorities are for you. I don't know what you think that he really wishes you would just get or what he expects from you. But I believe, according to his word, that his number one priority, his number one desire for you is that you would know and understand and believe in his love for you, as you are, not as you should be. Would you agree that in this letter, this idea of knowing God's love was really important. It was something that he really wanted these people to understand and get. It can almost seem redundant, like knowing, believing, knowing, understanding, knowing beyond knowledge. It's like, we get it, Paul. But uh, when I went to college the first time, I didn't listen a whole lot, I confess. But one thing I was taught was this. If the teacher says something, then you should take note. If they say it twice, you should write it down in your notes. If they write it on the board, it's going to be on the test, right? This is going to be on the test. This may be the only thing that's on the test. This may be the only thing that matters on the test at the end of life. Jesus said the two greatest commandments are to love God and love your neighbor. So that God is love right? How can I love God well and love my neighbor well if I don't believe in his love for me as I am, not as I should be? I think we often beat ourselves up that we don't love God more when really he's saying, if you know me more, you will love me more. So stop hanging your head and beating yourself up and, and saying you should, you should, you should, and say, I need, I need, I need. I need to know you more. I need to understand your love more so that I can love you and love others well. This is such a big deal that I think it's also the enemy's primary strategy in our lives. That there, there is an enemy of your soul who does not want you to know God's love, who doesn't want you to encounter and experience it God's love and find the joy of God's love. And especially if you're a Christian, uh, and the enemy is probably not going to convince you that God doesn't exist. If he can just convince you that God is not as good as he says he is, 
then you can continue to live in this absence of the fullness of what God has for you. And in an absence of a more abundant life. And, and if you look, it's the strategy with the first people that ever walked this earth. The first lie ever told to a human being on earth is, God doesn't want you to have that because he doesn't want you to have what's really good in life. The first lie ever told on earth was about the nature and character of God's love. And I don't think the strategy has changed much today. I think it's something that we're all, whether we're aware of it or not, we're, we're hearing messages of that God doesn't want that for you. God doesn't have that for you. God doesn't desire that for you. And what do we do when we don't believe in the goodness of the God that we've given our life to? How do we, how do we handle all of that? Um, my, my parents are here. If you haven't met them yet, you will. Uh, if you just hang around for a few minutes. And I, I just realized that I'm telling two stories today and they're both about my parents. That's kind of awkward. Um, but the first one is when I was five years old um, and I was, uh, we were at Piggly Wiggly in Richardson, Texas on, off of Beltline Road. And, uh, and I remember getting separated from my mom. And has uh, anybody ever get separated from their mom when you're a little kid and you just freak out? completely. I was fully like totally imploding, just screaming, crying. Uh, some nice lady that worked there uh, asked me, you know, where's your mom? Is your car there? She took me to the window. I looked out and I saw our station wagon with the dog in it. And I thought she left our dog in our car. Also, I can't believe she, she left me. She left the car. She left the dog. And then she put me up on the, on the um, register, the checkout stand there, and I looked around. I couldn't see her, and I finally, they finally found her. We were finally reunited. But I think back, and I think um, I would never do that today, right? I would never freak out if I couldn't find my mom in a store today or in the mall today because of how I've grown in my knowing of my mom and my knowing of her love for me. And I, I mean, if I lost her now, I would just think that she was lost and I need to find her because she thinks probably that I left her maybe. But uh, isn't that how we are with God sometimes? Like if we're afraid, if we're anxious, if we're freaking out, we think he's left me. I don't know how I'm gonna get through this. It's really just that we, we don't know him in that way that we trust him, that we believe even when we can't see him, that he's not run off, that he's still there, right? And when I look at scripture, and I think about somebody that really I felt like got this in the New Testament, it's, it's John, it's the disciple that was, we see Jesus's best friend. Um, at, at the cross, John was the disciple that was there. John was the one that followed him to the end. John was the one that Jesus entrusted his mother to, right? John was the one who so understood and believed in Jesus' love for him that he actually named himself the one whom Jesus loved, right? He, he probably spent the most time with Jesus alone. And the result of that was him identifying himself as one radically loved by God. That became his name. Which makes me think that might happen for me too. If I spend that time with Jesus, if I walk with Jesus, 
and allow him to transform my heart to believe and understand in his love for me. John's writings um, communicate this and depict this, especially First and Second John. And I want to share this passage from First John. With verse, starting in verse 18, he says, There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. So here's this guy that, that spent the most time with Jesus, defined himself as the one that Jesus loved. And then when he writes letters, he talks about love in this radical way. And he says, love casts out all fear. If you're in love and God is love, if you're in the midst of that, fear goes away. But you only know what love is because he loved you first. And so if you go and you are unable to love others, it's because you don't know his love for you. And I think about this and how, um, how we struggle with things. We struggle with loving people well. We struggle with following God well or, or loving God. And it's actually more an expression of the deficit in our own hearts of our understanding of his love for us. And that's where we've got to go back to. I heard this quote once. I don't know who it came from, but I think it is so true. It says, whatever you think you must do to earn God's love, you will require others to do in order to earn your love. The judgments, the demands, the hurts we project onto others is quite possibly a reflection of a lack of our own understanding and belief of God's love for us unconditionally as we are, not as we should be. We can only share God's love with others to the degree that we know it and believe it for ourselves. The third prayer uh, is from Paul's letter to the Philippians. And he says this, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Again, simply what I take out of that is, I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so you may be able to discern and know what's best, becoming filled with the fruit produced from righteousness. I pray that you grow so deep in knowing God's love and experiencing God's love that you instinctually make the right choices and it becomes who you are. And if I could boil this down one more time, I think it says that believing in the Father's love changes my behavior. And I think too often we have heard or believed that I've got to change my behavior so that it shows people that I love God. And I think it's just the opposite. The more I know God, the more I believe in his love for me, the more my choices change. The more I see his, his, his desires for me or his will for me or his what I call logical loving limits are because of his love for me because he wants the best for me. 
You know, too often we're like the kid that's like, my mom doesn't, won't let me play in the street because she doesn't want me to have fun. And it's like, no, she doesn't want to scrape you off the grill of a truck. She wants you to have a great life. And so it is with God's ways and his will and his, his desires, his laws even for us are out of love. Friday, March 11th, 1988. I remember it vividly. Um, I was getting ready to go see the most important concert of my life. Uh, I was a, a huge fan of the police when I was uh, growing up. Big fan. I wore the T-shirt. I remember riding down the street on my bike with the album under my arm to go share it with a friend. And... Um, Tragically, the police broke up before I ever got to see them in concert. But there was this guy, Sting, who was in the band The Police. And so he started making records and touring. And um, a few months before this date, my mom, I don't know how I convinced her to do this, but she took me to the mall at like four in the morning so that I could get in line outside of Dillard's to wait for them to open so that I could be the first at the Ticketmaster machine to get my ticket for this Sting concert. And, um, and, and she took me, I waited, and miraculously, I got floor seats to see this guy that was like my hero. That's all I could think about. And uh, I, uh, there was one caveat to this. And that was that my dad said, um, you just can't drive your Jeep to Houston to see the concert. Someone else is going to have to drive. And so I, I asked around, and I, and I found a friend, Mike, who said he could drive, and he wanted to go. So here we are. We're set. We're ready to go. All systems are go. And the day comes, and Mike comes to me in school and says, um, John, uh, my parents said I can't drive tonight. Oh, okay. Um, hey, do you want to go see Sting? Like, I start like uh, trying to recruit a friend who can drive, and I can't. And it's just me and Mike. And so I do what every good and honest and respectable teenager would do. I tell my parents that uh, I'm driving over to Mike's house where I'm going to drop off my car, and he's going to drive us to Houston. And I go to Mike's house, and I pick him up in my Jeep. And we drive to Houston. And, uh, and the concert's incredible. And we not only get on the floor where our seats are, but we get sneak up to like the fifth row where you can see like sweat flying off their heads when they're moving around. And you're like, oh my gosh, like I can touch, this is incredible. And so uh, we head home and I almost flip the Jeep on the highway trying to leave Houston. And I get home safe though, drop off Mike, park the car in the garage, go to bed, get up the next morning, come to breakfast. And dad says, so how was, how was the concert last night? I'm like, it was awesome. You wouldn't believe it. It was like, it, it, he did all my favorites. The production was incredible. They did Message in a Bottle and he did Roxanne. And it was amazing. Thank you so much for letting me go. And he says, uh, did you drive? And I, I was like, no, I mean, Mike drove, like we talked about. Like I dropped my car at Mike's house and he drove and and, uh, and he, he was kind of awkwardly quiet. And uh, he said, why are you lying to me? And I thought, 
uh, this is when it's, it like stinks to have a smart dad because he, he checked my odometer the night before and he checked my odometer that morning and he knew how far I'd driven and that I didn't just go to Mike's house. And I said, well, because this was it. This was the concert. Like, I had, I had been dying to see this show. You know how much this means to me. I waited in line. I mean, all of that. You, you know, I couldn't miss it. And I'll never forget these words. He said, of course I knew how much that concert meant to you. I would have never let you miss it. If you had just told me, I would have driven you there. And my heart sank. I remember it today. But isn't this how we are with God sometimes? Like, I didn't know and believe in, in the love that my father had for me, that he wanted something that may have seemed trivial but was important to me. And he wanted to help me experience it. But because I didn't believe and trust in that, I created my own agenda and my own way to make it happen because I was more concerned about getting what I wanted than honoring my father. And if I had honored my father, I would have gotten both, right? And so I think... Um, I think that that is often a picture, especially those of us that are further along in our years uh, in, in, in Christianity. If you're like a professional Christian, like you put in 10 years or more, um, I hope this speaks to you because you can come to a place of knowing in, in your head knowledge all the things you're supposed to know, but for some reason you're not acting them out or living them out or experiencing them. And then you just kind of shame yourself and then you do what you think you've got to do to get around the God that you think doesn't want what you want or what you need or what's best for you. And it can be a very discouraging, cynical place to live in. So I want you to hear this as I've studied this and read it and, and really for the last couple of years um, kind of come back to this thing. It's it, knowing the love of God. That's what it's all about. It's what it's all about. Everything else has to be an overflow of that and everything else has to be the natural fruit of that. Here's what I've come to, to believe, that, that God saved you because of his love. For God so loved the world that he sent his son, right? He saved you because of his love and he saved you so that you may know him the God who is love. This is eternal life that you may know the one true living God. And he saved you by his love, through his love, because of his love, so that you might be transformed by his love. As Jeremy said earlier, uh, his kindness leads us to repentance. And I think we think, I should repent, I should stop, I should quit, I shouldn't, I shouldn't do that. And really, it's that if I knew his love for me, I might be so much more understanding and eager and willing and even have the strength, as Scripture says, the power to walk in the way of discernment because of knowing and believing and understanding in his love for me. And then in that, we find a destiny of sharing his love. As we've received it, we've encountered it, we've experienced it, then we have it to naturally give to others as just the outpouring of our life. Which brings me back to Buddy the Elf. Hard to believe that it can actually come back to Buddy the Elf. But at the end of the movie, again, spoiler alert, he saves Christmas. Because Santa's sleigh will not run. Because the fuel for Santa's sleigh is Christmas cheer. And people have lost their belief in Christmas. But Buddy believes in Christmas. 
So Buddy goes around and his joy and belief in Christmas actually causes other people to believe in Christmas. And they start singing Christmas carols. And others hear that and they start singing along and it spreads throughout the city and Santa's sleigh has the power to fly and all of Christmas is saved. So how does that apply to you? Well, if you're having trouble getting your sleigh off the ground this Christmas season, if you feel like your faith has somehow lost its power, its strength, that fuel that makes it run, I would encourage you to consider that that fuel is understanding and believing and knowing the love of God. That's the fuel your heart was created to run on. And if you feel in any way apathetic or cynical or discouraged or hopeless, I encourage you to lean into seeking to know better and believe better this love that you may have accepted as a cliche, but God wants it to be something real that moves your heart. So how do we do that? I wanna just give you some suggestions on things that have worked in my life that I've seen produce fruit in, the, in, this, in my heart. The first one is God's word and the writings of, of people who know God. Obviously, in God's word, there's lots to learn about, to read about, to know about his love. Uh, the life of Jesus. Jesus said, I am an exact representation of the Father, uh, the icon of the Father. I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. I don't say anything unless the Father tells me to say it. So if you want to know what the heart of the Father is, look at what is the heart of Jesus. Who does the Father love? Who does Jesus love? Who does the Father show mercy and compassion to? People that are in bondage, people that are far from him, people that are walking in ways far from his ways, much compassion, much patience, much kindness. You know the people that Jesus got annoyed with? Religious people, church people, people that wanted to just have a facade of their faith. Seek to know him through his word, through writings of people that know him. Uh, a book called Abba's Child has had a profound impact in my life uh, about really identifying yourself radically as beloved by God as his child. The second is a time alone with God. And this may all seem like simple to you. Like I said, if you've been around the church a long time, but time alone with God, listening to God, not just talking, not just asking, but actually just getting in silence and listening. One thing Brennan Manning says in that book, Abba's Child, is there's some things you will only learn when you take the time to rest your head on the chest of the rabbi and listen. And I believe God speaks today. He speaks to us individually today. And he wants us to listen and hear the words that he wants to tell us about who we are and how he loves us. Spend time with people who you recognize as someone who exudes the love of God. Ask them, hey, can we just hang out? I, there was a guy I just in our church, I just said, um, Alex DeBrot, if he's here, I was like, that dude exudes the love of God. I want to have coffee with him and, and just pick his brain and find out where did you get this? How, how, how do you have this? And I want to know more about it. Um, just say, hey, can I, can I run errands with you? Can I go to the grocery store with you? I just need to be around you. Because I want to pick up what you have. I want to learn from it. I want to experience it. And then time with people that Jesus loves and cares about. This is a big one. So there's only so much you can know a person until you actually put yourself in the places that they love and the people that they love and encounter the things that they love. 
My example is my friend Steve Hill was here this morning. I've known Steve since the first day I came to Antioch. Um, We went to lunch that day. And if you know Steve Hill, you know he loves three things. He loves Boston, he loves basketball, and he loves his family. Not necessarily in that order. But a month ago, I went to Boston. I stayed with the Hill family, and I went with Steve to his college, Brandeis University, where they have a larger-than-life-size image of him on the wall in the gym. And I got to see him in his element. And I know and understand Steve in a way that I would never have before if I didn't encounter with him the things that he loves. Jesus loves the poor, the needy, the prisoner, the widow, the orphan, those who are broken, those who are outcasts, those who are marginalized. And if we're living a compartmentalized, consumeristic Christianity that is self-absorbed or all about just being in our comfort zone, there is a degree that you will never know or understand the love of God. But when you encounter into those places that he was, that he went, that he goes with the people that he is with, you will not only understand his love for them, but you'll understand his love for you better at all. And this last one is what I'm about to do in a moment whenever we um, close in, in worship. And that is ask for it, pray for it, ask other people to pray this for you. I think that if Paul said, this is how I'm praying for you, my spiritual children, that maybe we need people to pray that for us also. And maybe we need to pray that for ourselves. And so um, I'm gonna pray these three prayers over you that Paul prayed for the church. And as we close in worship, there'll be some folks up here from our prayer team. And if you want them uh, to pray this simple thing over you, then it will I think it's a great first step in saying, I want to receive this. I want to have this. I want God to do this in my life. And like I said, I'm going to pray these over you now, but there's something different about an individual putting a hand on your shoulder and praying these things by your name for you, over you. So if you would stand with me and just bow your heads in prayer. And if you want to, if you're comfortable with just opening your hands in front of you, just in a, in a posture of receiving, um, our physical uh, posture actually can affect our heart and our mind. And when we are sitting with arms crossed, kind of uh, we're closed off. But if we open our hands and our arms, it, it, it really opens up in a way our heart. So I just invite you to do that. Heavenly Father, I pray uh, for these people. I pray for your children that you created in your image, that you um, have pursued and redeemed by your love, that you are uh, transforming through your love and that you are giving a purpose and a destiny to share your love. And because of that, I ask you for them that you may give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may know you better. I pray the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened to know the hope that you have called them to and the riches of your glorious inheritance, which is them, your holy people, and your incomparably great power for all those who believe. And I pray that they would be rooted and established in this love and have power together with all of your people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love 
that surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And I pray that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that they may be able to discern what is best and pure and blameless for the day of Christ and that they may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. It's in his name we pray. spoke a word you seen over me you've been so so good to me before I took a breath before I took a breath you breathed your life in me you've been so so kind God, oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it, still you give yourself away, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. I was your foe, still your love fought for me. You've been so, so good to me. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. Yes, you did. You've been so, so Away. Oh, 
girl, you won't light up, bouncing, you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. There's no shadow you won't light up, bouncing, you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down. for this Christmas season, that you and I are deeply loved by the Father. I pray that as you go into your week this week, that you would go into the week with the confidence and the assurance and the reminder of God's love for you, that you would carry that into every interaction that you have this week. God bless you as you go. You are dismissed.